Welcome to The Film That Blew My Mind, our weekly podcast all about the heart and soul of cinema. I'm Tabitha Jackson. And I'm John Cooper. Today's guest is an actor of the highest order, a producer of great renown. His many credits include Bridesmaids, The Town, Confess, Fletch, The Morning Show, and the upcoming season of Fargo on FX. But he is most famously known as the infamous Don Draper on all seven seasons of Mad Men. Today's guest is, you've guessed it, Mr. John Hamm. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Yes, welcome. Thank you. It would be weird if they guessed something else. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Or your entire career in vain in one short <laughs> intro. <laughs> yeah, I think that gets quite a bit of it. I'm always pleased to hear about things that I've done, and I'm very proud of the things that I have in my toolbox. And what we didn't talk about, we didn't talk about a few things. We didn't talk about, we didn't say, for example, that you are a fan of the St. Louis, Car- St. Louis? St. Louis Cardinals. That's, that's a city in America, yes. Tabitha, right. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you're a fan of The Real Housewives. Uh, I am. I'm very much a sort of unashamed uh, fan of the franchise, as it were. <laughs> nice. And also what we didn't say, that he was in the 2010 film Howl, that was opening night of the Sundance Film Festival, my first year as director of the festival, way back when. Whoa. That was a, that was a while ago. That was a while ago. What a beautiful moment for both of you. <laughs> it was. So... Jonathan Daniel Ham. Me. Here's our question for you. What is the film that blew your mind? The film that blew my mind is a film that I think is really, really old now because I'm really, really old. But it was one of the first times I had been exposed to non-classic foreign cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a film... I want to say it came out in the late 80s. I should have done my research. Yeah, 1988. 88, okay. I was a junior. I would have been a junior in high school. Uh, and it's a, Giuseppe Tornatore's um, Cinema Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso. Oh, God, what a gorgeous film that is. It's so beautiful. And did you see it in, the, in a theater at that time? I did. I went and saw it. I want to say wow. it was probably at the High Point Theater in St. Louis which is a um, art house theater, although I think it might be being renovated as uh, there's a little group in St. Louis that's trying to hold on to those beautiful old cinemas that we had that we used to all have in in towns across this nation that have been closing rapidly. But that was where we would go to get our culture, get our culture on. Get your culture on. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine called David Wilson this morning, and he was one of the founders of the True False Film Festival in uh-huh. Columbia, Missouri, Columbia. where yeah. you were a student, I believe. We had a small bet that you would have seen this film in the Campus Twin in Columbia. So I guess he's wrong. The Campus Twin is where I saw Reservoir Dogs. Oh. Uh, so that was a, I was there a little bit later than this. Um, I was at Mizzou 91 to 93. Whoa. So, yeah. Yep. And now a hotbed of great films. But let's get back to this film, Cinema Paradiso, for those of you who haven't seen it. As John said, it was late 1980s, 1988, directed by Giuseppe Tornatore and written by Tornatore and Vanna Paoli. 
And the one-line synopsis that Jessica has very helpfully provided for us is, a filmmaker recalls his childhood when falling in love with the pictures at the cinema of his home village in Sicily and forms a deep friendship with the cinema's projectionist. The projectionist is called Alfredo and is played by the legendary French actor Philippe Noiret with that incredible sad spaniel face the cross cross between a spaniel and super mario i think but, um, <laughs> and uh, and salvatore who's the adult that the film starts with is played by three different actors all of whom are spectacular particularly uh, salvatore as a young boy and then as a young a young man so the film opens with the older Salvatore and then goes into what is literally a two-hour flashback of his childhood in this village. So yeah, so take us back to that moment. I kind of want to know, so that you're a high school kid watching this film. Wow. High school kid, yeah. And uh, it was a, you know, how to say it? It was just, a, it was just an eye-opener. I mean, it, it literally was a film that blew my mind. I, I, I hadn't really, certainly hadn't studied film, obviously, media consumption in the 80s was a lot different than it is now. You can't just dial up any movie ever and watch it immediately at your leisure. It was a lot harder to get films, especially foreign films, unless you subscribe to like the Janus collection or any, even the Criterion collection wasn't really happening back then. Um, So it was a lot harder and therefore you kind of had to keep your ear to the ground for these kinds of things. And it, I, I don't know how, how else to say it other than it was a um, beautiful cell. It's also a celebration of film, which I hadn't certainly didn't realize at the moment I had seen it. But in, in later viewings, which is, I think, the hallmark of a really great film is that it affects you completely differently at, at whatever age you watch it. I've had that experience with quite a few movies of not not getting it, but it hitting in a different way at a, at a different age. And this is certainly one of those kinds of films. Can you remember who you saw it with? Oh God, no! I really can't. It was probably some kids from from school. I mean, it was definitely some kids from school because getting out of the house was a was job one. Uh, <laughs> when at that age, <laughs> I was like, "Please get me out of here!" And uh, yeah, so we we definitely did that. And cinema snacks at that time would have been cinema snacks at that time would have been popcorn. Classic, you know, it was classic. before the. It was also before the days of the ability to order a full meal at, at the cinema too. So it right. was popcorn and candy. It was kind of the, the, the traditional situation. My, my go-to was, I, I believe, a milk dud as well as a, as a buttered popcorn because somehow the chocolate and the popcorn went exceedingly well together. It's umami. It's a classic. Umami, the, the chocolate and the, the sweetness, salt. And I am a milk dud person too, so I'm going to chalk that up as our first go wrong thing with we dud. You can't. There's no dud that is a dud. Because <laughs> they last so long. They do. They do for, for minutes. You know, I think we should get in the mood for this film by hearing a clip. Cool. And uh, so let's roll one. See what the lottery gives us. Oh, so beautiful. Mm. 
So that's playing for the priest. He has to play every film for the priest before he shows it to the public. So he can mark the uh, the spots in the film where there's anything that's suggestive at all. And then he has to cut them out of the film and then put them back in later, which those poor films are probably just shredded by the time they, they went to the next town. So, John, we just had a little taster there. Give us an idea of some of the things that you found so special about this film. I think part of it was that the movie sort of exudes in every frame, a reverence for film and filmmaking. And it doesn't sort of name check just the hits. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like the B-movies of Italian cinema get as much play as, as the classics of American cinema. Mm -hmm. They were all sort of treated the same way in which, you know, they were judged by this local priest and anything that was remotely romantic or sexual in any way had to be cut out. And you saw in that clip there when you first see just all the kind of arcane workings of the projection room and how the beam comes out of that amazing portal, which is in the shape of a lion's head and mouth. There's just a, an intense love for the cinema. That's what the movie is really about. And the word I keep coming back to is sumptuous. Yeah. Like it's just, it's a gorgeous film that you know, even the score by Ennio Morricone is absolutely just oh, resonant and yeah. beautiful. And it's an incredibly emotional film. And I, so when I'm 17 years old, you know, you're a teenager, my God, all you think about is how hard you love and how, you know, everything is difficult and tricky. And, and that part of it is, is wildly at the forefront of your brainstem. <laughs> so it was, it was just that kind of amazing experience to watch that film. I, watched it again last night and I hadn't seen it since 1988 so I was I was 18 when I when I saw it and I had completely forgotten about the whole older Salvatore which is the framing of the film and I just remembered that the wonder of that little kid and the lovely Philippe Noire in the cinema booth and the, all the details of the town and I loved the film this time, it was such an emotional experience because as I think, as we get older, then it's more about memory and aging and going back to a place that you've left many years before. Salvatore leaves his town and doesn't go back for 30 years and unfulfilled desires. It's about a love of a love of so many things, including the cinema, but it's played on a much richer orchestra as it were, this time for me, because it's so, there's something melancholy about it, as well as the vitality of his younger years. How was it for you, Cooper? It's also the death of cinema, too, in a way. I mean, the, the town. And right. That they staged that whole tearing down of the theater at the end. It's like, oh, my God, I forgot all about that. That And it's not like it isn't happening today. I mean, you were talking, John, this, mm -hmm. the theater that you saw it in, and there's so many theaters like that where people shared so much of their lives that that's all going away and it's the most nostalgic film i think i've ever seen but it's not cloying in some way it's no. very real um and that's what the magic of this film is he makes you face your own nostalgia in a way that's truthful i guess absolutely you said it it's easy to forget the the framing device of the film and and how it is essentially a two two and a half hour flashback but it hits so much harder when you see that this man has become and how they set it up is that he has become a 
renowned filmmaker in his own. I think he's getting ready to get some award or something at the beginning when he hears that Alfredo has died and, you know, triggers this whole thing. And then watching the experiences that led him to get to the place we saw him at are amazing. And you're right to say, Cooper, that it's, it's somehow not maudlin or cloying. It just feels very earned and real. And it's, it's about this boy finding a life and finding the the community of his small town sort of like raising him and then kicking him out of the nest to go find his way, which is a, a big part of it too. Like go, go do this is what you love. In thinking about what the film is about, you know, in it, Alfredo, who becomes his father figure because Salvatore's father is actually kind of lost in the war, never returns. So Alfredo, the cinema projectionist at Cinema Paradiso in the town, becomes a father figure. And uh, Salvatore is obsessed with being in the projection booth and learning how to do it and screening it. And, and through that, he's seeing the life of the town and the townspeople as they come to this central community place and they laugh and they cry and they have sex and they you know it's all human life is in there and salvatore sees it salvatore also falls in love with a young woman i guess they're kind of teens age appropriate definitely definitely legal um and I, yeah they're def- they're teenagers and then yeah, it turns into romeo and juliet for a second it's like that's right but what happens is interesting because he's kicked out of that town and and sent away. But where we find him in the present day is someone who hasn't found a love to match up to the one that he left. He's never he never got married. He never had kids. Uh, not that that's a, a sign of anything in particular. But more importantly, he never found that other relationship. Well, it was it was cinema. I mean, that's really what I think the movie's trying to postulate is that yes, he's gotten that, but when he's reflecting upon the lessons that he learned, it is that that's not it. That true love is between people, not between uh, right. you and your art. It will be ultimately unfulfilling. And his memory of not only the love he has for the girl he meets and falls in love with, but yes. for Alfredo and for all of the emotions that this event drums up, it's really effective. And and it's sometimes I I just marvel at the ability of filmmakers. I call it like riding the knob, like they're able to twist the knob and which I know sounds very different in British English. (laughs) Thank you. But but there's a, if there was a tone knob, like a a turning knob, you could turn and it's, you make it a little more this way or a little more that way. And they're always able to keep that little arrow right in the middle of the effective space of manipulating the tone and the emotion and Tornatori, who I don't really think had any other big hits after this. Not really. No. Right. Kind of really left it all on the table with this one. And you're right to call out Philippe Noiré is so perfectly. I remember when I found out he was French, I was like, wait a minute, what? How is that guy not like totally Italian? You're right. He's like somewhere between Super Mario and every other Italian stereotype you've ever seen, but he's so good. And he's so, evocative and he's you know world weary and he's also wise and all all the other things that that come with that it's um salvatore the the young boy's nickname is toto yeah which is has its own you know kind of resonance in in the film world obviously so it hits on so many levels and i have to say it for those who haven't seen it out there it's 
the craftsmanship of the movie is oh, spectacular. Stunning. Uh, yeah. Just the, the I, I don't have his name on on the tip of my tongue, but the, the photography in it is gorgeous. The music, as I mentioned earlier, Ennio Morricone, mm. it's one of his most just gorgeous soundtracks. And it really is the whole group of people working at the top of their game. Yeah, totally. I think too, back to his craft, I watched it last night as well. Every scene, there's like the, the action's going on, but then there'll be like just one kid sitting over there by himself, or all of a sudden they'll run some sheep across the screen in front of the action. It's just like <laughs> letting you into this town and giving the town its own character as well. Like he comes back and he's walking the funeral stretch, you know, on the street yeah. with all the people and realizing that all those people that he set up are now older and you're being able to pick them out. I think that was the most powerful scenes. You know? Well, it brings it back to the fact that the cinema was the center of this community and is what they all had in common. And for me, too, it was growing up, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. You know, it wasn't exactly the most cosmopolitan town. It's a perfectly lovely town to be from, and I, and I love it very much, but it's a good place to be from. And so for me, seeing the world was very often handled and negotiated through through cinema. Mm. So, you know, my travel logs were James Bond films and National Geographic things. And, and then films like this, it was like, oh, that, wow, that's really Italy. That's, that's what it looks like. I, I probably never get to go there, but I have mm. fortunately since then been able to, but it is, it is such a beautiful thing to represent mm. on film. You've seen it in a million times since then, but for the first time when you're just, you're, you're sort of arrested by how different it, everything is. And you mentioned how this town squares and the small, it, I think it was shot in Sicily, but it's so like rugged and mountainous and kind of out of time. And, yeah. and if you talk about the influence that a movie like this has through the years, I mean, you, you also see it probably uh, less than a decade later in a movie called Il Postino, which is another sort of loving little love letter to a small town, Italy life. But I think if you look at what Luca Guadagnino and um, Paolo Sorrento have done in the last few years, 100% they, they went to school on this movie <laughs> because there's so much of their, in a wildly different way, but the emotional storytelling is so redolent in in this film and in their works if you look at any of their stuff yeah i think cooper what you were just saying about the detail is part of the reason it didn't become overly sentimental or cloying and i think it's because of the tornatore it was kind of biographical in the place and the setting and things that he's experienced. He shot it in his hometown, right? Is his hometown in Sicily, so he knew it. Yeah, so those moments when the camera is describing those little fleeting glimpses of humanity that he had noticed and continues to notice, I think that's what roots it in something that isn't. I found Il Postino a little bit sweet, and maybe it's because it was directed by a Brit rather than an Italian. And also the darkness, as you alluded to, that, you know, Salvatore has two great loves, the cinema and this woman, Elena, and he doesn't ultimately get Elena, although he kind of does, and he doesn't ultimately get cinema, 
although he kind of does, because we see the funeral of Alfredo at the same time as the funeral for cinema, and the cinema's turned into a car park. So it's got layers of melancholy and those minor key notes that feel real, not simply the, oh, I'd love to go on holiday to that place um, notes of Il Postino. Right, yeah, it's (laughs) definitely not that movie. For me too, you know, this movie sort of flipped a switch in my perception of film and filmmaking as well. I mean, I am a child of the 70s. I am a, a blockbuster kid and, and every way you can define that. I, I grew up on the blockbuster films of the 70s and early 80s. Mm. I love a George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, uh, all of that. And, and in fact, when I was asked to pick a movie that turned my head or blew my mind, I, I immediately went to those because those mm. were the, truly the seminal movies of my youth. But this really changed the direction of how I perceived film and filmmaking. And and when I went to college, I started taking film courses and really getting into the sort of deep cuts of the movies we consider sort of classic, you know, um, 400 Blows and Last Year at Marion Bod and, and all of the mm-hmm. major players in that world and, and Vittoria De Sica and, and Fellini and those guys who are making kind of the early classic Italian cinema. And it's a lot more difficult to engage with because they're old movies. Mm. And while it's set in the post-war Italy in the probably 40s or 50s, whenever it really is set, it feels very modern or very contemporary, I should say, in its storytelling. Yes. And that, for a lot of reasons, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I never could really get into Fellini movies. Mm. Part of it was the way that they were recorded, they were not recorded in sync sound. It always seemed very presentational and there was visually, obviously they're a, they're a feast, but the story was always a little bit hard for me to engage with. They're always a little bit abstract. Yeah. And it was, and it was a choice obviously. And, and it's a bold one and it's one that he's rightfully celebrated for, but it was for my kind of more modern Again, growing up on Spielberg and Lucas and and the American films of the 70s and 80s, it was a little bit of a difficult leap to make. But this one, I I defy anybody to see this movie and not be transported. (laughs) But then it also does this thing of we can experience the townspeople falling in love with Italian cinema because we see them watching it and we see it projected on screen. So we can see Fellini in a, in a different way, or we can see those movies through their eyes. I think the film itself has such a tender gaze. It's non-judgmental, but it still manages to illuminate. Even the priest, who's de facto censor of the cinema that the town gets to see, the camera and the direction and the performances allows you to see his complexity. Uh-huh. He's still a comic character, but he's feeling the feels in the film. And then suddenly his religion kicks in. And is right. like, no, they must not see this kiss. But he wants to, he wants to see the kiss more than anybody. <laughs> he knows what's coming. He doesn't ring the bell before it. Yeah, he wants to see it. But then he, yeah, he it snaps him back. He goes, he realizes, damn, I have to do my job. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But the other thing, when as the priest is watching these movies to kind of give them a a classification for the town, you see young Salvatore peering through the curtains in one of the beautiful of many kind of acts of portraiture in the film. So there is so much to be read on people's faces, even kind of 
minor roles. It's the humanity is all there on the faces, as you say, through yeah. the cinematography. And Jessica's just let us know that Blasco Girato is the cinematographer. Yeah. Fantastic work. There is a study to be made for the filmmakers that make the film that is about their life. For sure. Where they know every detail. They're not like observing it from far away where it's about them. And I think almost all the big filmmakers have that film in them. That is this film. And that's why maybe he didn't make other films because that was his real strength was to tell his story. And then you move on, you know? Yeah. And look, if you're only known for one thing, I know, uh, and it's that thing, yeah. <laughs> there's worse places to be. That's right. Were you thinking of acting at that point? Did you think about the acting within that film? I had probably done, by that point in my life, I'd probably done a few plays in high school. And I was probably thinking more about sports and girls <laughs> at that point in my life. But I don't know. I will say that the experience of seeing this movie, and again, it's so hard to put it into the context of the late 80s. Yeah. When seeing a movie like this was difficult. Right. <laughs> like you had to go to a place at a certain time where they started it on time. And if you didn't, you know, you, you didn't see it. And it wasn't running forever. It was running for a week. And you had to manage it with going to school and everything. It was like, it was an endeavor to get to see something like this. And, and like I said, it really did open my eyes to just a different kind of movie making and different from, you know, I think the movie that I saw either right before or right after this was probably Die Hard, <laughs> you know, which is a great movie, but a different kind of movie. Yeah. Just to put it in its context of where American cinema was right around there you know, Michael Douglas in Black Rain yeah. or something where you're just like, okay, there's that choice, or I could maybe try to see something like this. So I endeavored to say I wasn't considering being an actor. I don't think I considered really being an actor until I got out of college and realized I had, I really have no other marketable skill set. <laughs> but yeah, at this point, it, it certainly opened my eyes to the fact that, okay, there's a lot of ways to tell stories and that would be a fun way to do it. Well, I also, and I hope this is okay territory to go into and just say if it isn't, I mean, certainly in my case, cinema helped me relate to or allow me to look at things that were very difficult for me. And I know by the time you saw this film, you'd already lost your mother. Yeah. And my dad was on the way out. So yeah, I mean, it's certainly a reminder of which way life goes, which is in one direction. Mm. Um, and the film definitely deals with that in a real way mm -hmm. and loss and the anguish of having somebody uh, taken from your life and the trauma that that kind of embeds. But that's part of the emotional calculus of this film is looking back on a life. How, what got me here? How did I get here? Mm. And who helped me get here? Mm. And I've got a list of hundreds of people in my life. It's good to look back on those things. It's good to remember them. That's another wonderful thing about the cinema and it's a wonderful thing about filmmaking is that it exists as a moment in time. It's a record of that place and that story. But it's also a time machine yes. so that dead people can come alive. Yeah. I mean, that's literally what happens in this film. We start off when the older Salvatore gets the news of Alfredo's death. The flashback is an act of resurrection yeah. for Alfredo. We know he's dead. We see him in full 
life and we can encounter him as such. So it's it's a particular magic that cinema can do in a way that no other art form can. Yeah, plays don't work that way. Right, right. <laughs> Let's think how it could have ended because when you think about it, he goes back, someone in his life is dead, so it's a funeral. They blow up the theater right in front of him. His whole his whole life there, that part of his life is gone. His mother says, I'm very amazing. Like Every time I call, there's another woman answers, but none of them love you. <laughs> it's like, mom, how does she know that? So it's like, she's basically calling out, you've never been in love. That's an amazing scene. And that, so it could have ended there, but then they do that amazing scene of the gift of the of that, which is, I think, one of the most mm. beautiful things I've ever seen. It's breathtaking. I mean, it really yeah. is truly. Even talking about it, I'm getting misty. But it's like, and which we won't spoil for those who haven't seen it. But it is a, it is a great ending. Remarkable, <laughs> remarkable ending to this film. And the music is so beautiful in that scene. It's almost like I could see a director now going, "I can't play that music. It's overpowering my film. It's it's better than my film almost." But then you look at the career of Ennio Morricone, and, and he only recently, I think he worked up until his 90s. I know. Yeah, um, yeah. I think he did the score for Hateful Eight. And every one of his scores are just soaring. Talk about a, a masterclass in that aspect of filmmaking, of how much music and sound is so important to establishing tone and mood and, and mm -hmm. emotion. We don't see very many grown men in movies with their eyes watering. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen that often. Especially from Joy. Yeah. He, that actor is so good at letting his eyes well up. It's just like, God, how, he doesn't cry ever. Well, you have to be made of stone to not have that happen. I know. If I was an actor I was, and I had to do any dramatic scene, I go, can I just see that scene one second before I run to this? Just the music. I mean, just even just the music. Take me there. Yeah. The other thing I love, when the older Salvatore, towards the end of this three-hour film, most of which is flashback, goes back into the cinema, it's so powerful that as he walks around and looks at things, we can remember exactly what he is remembering. Yeah. When he looks at a spot on the floor, we know exactly what he's thinking about when he looks at it. Oh, when he goes into the old theater in ruins and finds the the head of the lion that we were talking about, sure. the projector comes through and it's all spider webbed over. It's just like, oh my God, you know. Well, that's right. And it kills me that he doesn't pick that up because he should keep that lion head. I know. It's like, take that, take that home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking when he looks on the floor, it's at the front row. We've seen him lose his virginity there. So the shot itself is not that interesting. It's the memory that we both have, that Salvatore has, and that we have as the viewer. It's so... The memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely loaded with the memories of things past. You know, it's it, not for nothing. Uh, it was a bit of a theme in uh, my former character, Don Draper's career, about, about how nostalgia is incredibly evocative and powerful. Yeah. I don't know. I just keep coming back to this what the film seems to be telling us. And I kind of think, yes, he wouldn't have been a film director had he stayed in that Sicilian town, but he may have been with the love of his life. Is that not? No, she wasn't coming back. She left town. They never said if she came back looking for him. You know, she got sucked up in her father's demands on her. And I don't know. But if he'd gone back. Gone back to wait for her. I don't know. I guess my question is, 
is it right that he ends up with cinema and no relationship or should he have gone with a relationship and just been a cinema projectionist all his life no he's gonna i i always make up my own stories (laughs) to make myself feel better but i think he's going to now find the love of his life after he's lived through this and faced his past yes i think that's that's really what it is and i think that that he's he had to get away and find his own path to then get out of his own way right in a lot of ways now he's going to meet the woman of his life and get married and he's going to be famous and happy. Hey, it happens for some of us in later in life. So, you know. I know. I was, hey. say, I, I was leading a witness. It's like <laughs> And John goes, Yes, that happened to me. <laughs> Very sophisticated movie. Oh, do we have another clip yes. that we can listen to? Oh, this is when they're gonna show the film in the square because they can't get into the theater. He does a little trick with light reflection and throws the screen out into the piazza. The magic of this, this projection booth, there's a people who couldn't get into the cinema so Alfredo flips a bit of the projector around and managed to cast it on the wall. And all the scenes of the outdoor projections are just like, oh, my God, it's beautiful. Well, I'll go even deeper on that because it, it really is a little kid. And this kid, you have to understand, is probably eight. This is magic. You know, you don't have any concept of how this works as a little kid. And he says the line, if you don't have faith in anything, have faith in what you see. And then it, it just reflects the light coming out of the projector into the thing. And the kid is mind's blown. Yes. <laughs> Wait a minute. How is that possible? That would be the film that blew his mind. Yes, exactly. And then the whole town gets to, to see the movie. And um, so much of how they shoot the scenes in the projection room is so lovingly shot. And it's, dust coming through light and it's all about the the magic of yes. what a projected image truly is and i think if you look back at the history of film in the early 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 days in the early 20th century that people their brains weren't wired to really understand what that was and the famous story of the train pulling into the station people jumping out of the way and it really is to a certain level of understanding it's magic um, and that is really, I think, one of the other big themes of the film is the magic of cinema and how it transports people. Yes, it's beautiful. You couldn't make this movie in a very waspy place either because the Italians are so, anything goes wrong, they all scream at the projection booth. They scream <laughs> at the people, you know. I remember I went to the Venice Film Festival once and they had in the square in Venice, they would show a movie and it was a Woody Allen movie and they said tickets are going to be on sale at two o'clock. And so the whole crowd, there was no line. It was just a mob around <laughs> yeah. this little kiosk in the middle of the square. Chaos. And they got pissed off and they started rocking it, the, the kiosk, with a little man inside <laughs> screaming. Like It was just like, wow, this is like an Italian yeah. movie because where else would you see that, you know? The Lutherans aren't going to be exactly, you know, (laughs) happening in Gothenburg. They'll be lined up tastefully, and you know. Anyway, it was just such a that's a beautiful, just love beautiful image, and it's like a movie. It's like this movie. Yeah, they would be doing that, you know. 
I can't shake the feeling still from watching that film last night. I'm just engulfed Mm -hmm. in lovely warmth and love and melancholy and and I want to eat pasta for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, it's a good yeah. it's oh. a good advertisement for visiting Italy. Yes, it is, <laughs> and the cinema. I'm older than you both, and the nostalgia in this is yeah. it does get you. The more you watch yep. it, if you watch this in 20 years, it will be even bigger in your for sure, your, uh, for sure. It's, yeah. So lightning round. So lightning round, John Ham. Yes. What? Is the weirdest thing that has ever happened to you in a movie theater? Oh, I I have a great story for this. So my friend and I, this is, I was in St. Louis and it was during the winter time and we went to see Silence of the Lambs. And again, nobody knew anything about this movie other than it was supposed to be really good and really scary. And my buddy and I went and it was freezing cold. It was released around Christmas, I think, and just bitter, bitter, bitter cold. And we're wrapped up in 92 coats and we've got all of our shit on and you have to then take it all off and put it under the seat or something. And it's <laughs> packed. It's a packed movie theater. Um, so we watched the movie and it's, it's the movie that you remember. It's absolutely riveting and tense and terrifying. And you know, everybody's got some version of a cold in the theater. So there's a lot of sniffling and a lot of like (laughs) sneezing and everybody's on the way to getting sick and having a fever. It's cold outside, but there's heat in there. So you're sweating and it's just a lot going on physiologically. (laughs) And at some point, my friend, unbeknownst to me, gets a bloody nose and he thinks it's just his nose running. So he's kind of rubbing it. So the movie ends and the end of the movie is intense. And it's, you know, the scene in the night vision with with Jodie Foster and Buffalo Bill and Anthony Hopkins eating the guy's face and the whole thing. And, and the lights come up and I look to my friend, I go, man, that was tit. And it, he's got blood all over his face. And I was like, ah, what the hell happened to you? He's like, what? I go, you have blood all over your face. What's going on? He goes, oh, no, did I get a bloody nose? I was like, yes, stop wiping it. Like, go to the thing. And then other people start to know it and it kind of gets a little tense. And I was like, you need to go to the bathroom now and like wash your face. Um, so that was, that, was the, that was the weirdest for sure. <laughs> and all the other people thought you'd eaten half his face yeah, off exactly. during the movie. Something, yeah, yeah. Something, it was an experiential. In, in his popcorn was just a bunch of fingers or something. <laughs> uh, that's also so, okay. Over to that's you. a good. That's a good story. That's an excellent one. Yep. the The second question we have for you is because it's always hard to pick this one movie that blew your mind, like we request of you. But you started touched on it. But was there another film in particular that you would have chosen as well? It's hard to say because, like I said, this one moved me in a very different way and kind of moved me into my adult life and appreciation of cinema and everything. But if I think back to what my childhood jaw-dropping moment was, it's probably Star Wars. We call it now the world-building and the ambition of that movie. And it's you know it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's pretty good. And it established one of the greatest movie stars of my generation, Harrison Ford. It's got all of the things and it was technologically for its time was beyond the pale right and it for a little kid that's all i cared about was star wars for probably a solid decade that was an important 
thing for me and and, and mostly just sparking imagination of like yeah. what is this all about and this argument has been made a million times it's a western it's just set in space instead of guns they have cool glowing swords it's still it's it's an impeccably done one yes it's a space western but it's also as an introduction to the sensory possibilities of cinema being in that space with that kind of sound just even the way it opens with a huge crawl and you're just <laughs> like what the what <laughs> is this the 1930s is this a silent film like what is this all about but then the crawl turns into that massive spaceship just taking up the entire screen and you're like okay i'm in it's literally, it's wonder. It's the ability to experience wonder, which yeah. is the thing. Skywalker, you know, they have that amazing Skywalker sound. They have the amazing studio called The Stag, which is just to watch any film in there is incredible. And they play on their reel a scene from Star Wars before the sound design has right. been done on it. Huh. So Dave Prowse with his West Country accent playing Darth Vader. And then it just, it looks utterly ridiculous yeah yeah with that, before the special effects and the sound design has been put on it it's it's a great thing to see next time you're there i'm, I'm doing actually an on-stage conversation with marcia lucas who was married to george lucas and edited star wars oh wow and she said the most brilliant thing that george ever did was like they weren't giving him the deal he wanted it was kind of like a fucked up thing and they want to take something away from him. he goes take that away but if you do that i get control over all merchandise yeah. And they didn't expect it to be a big hit. So they were like, sure, you can oh, yeah. merchandise. Enjoy yeah. your 25 cents. <laughs> yeah, sell your T-shirts. It's probably made them more money than all the rest of it. Oh, for sure. Oh, my God. For sure. That that's, is- that's a multi-billion dollar enterprise that he smartly negotiated. Yeah. That's a note, Cooper. We need to get our merch. We need to get a little... Get little yeah, get on your merch. Cooper dolls for this podcast. <laughs> okay, in the remaining two minutes, John Ham, what's either the best piece of advice you've been given or the best piece of advice you can think to give? It's, it goes back to my days as a Cub Scout, uh, but it's just be prepared. I use Edgar Wright as the example of this, but Edgar, who I think is one of the more savvy and, and knowledgeable film directors out there. He eats and breathes and lives filmmaking, as does Steven Spielberg, as does Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino. A lot of filmmakers do, which they should. It's their life. But Edgar knows exactly what shots he wants to get and has pretty much made the movie in his head and then has to then realize that in three dimensions and on set in real time with all of the craziness that comes with that. So Mm. for my job in front of the camera, and I've learn this from back when I was a student, it's just to be ready, be ready and open to what's about to happen. And I think if you want to extrapolate that into a life lesson, that's a pretty good one too. Mm. And if your mind and your heart and all of your senses are open to receiving and present in where you are, then the experience comes through in every dimension. And that, that really makes for a richer life, for want of a better word. So all you got to do is be prepared. That is a profound and beautiful point at which to stop. I will just add that my advice when I was a girl guide was never eat yellow snow. And that's why I'm doing a podcast and you are a top international cinema legend. Thank you for sharing the film with us again so that we can share it with other people. Cinema Paradiso 
directed by Giuseppe Tonatore. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. So deservedly so. Deservedly so, and it's easy to find. Go watch it. This interview was recorded prior to the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. We proudly support the people who work to create these stories and bring them to the screen. If you'd like to share the film that blew your mind, send us an email to stories at thefilmthatblewmymind.com. The Film That Blew My Mind is hosted by me, John Cooper. And me, Tabitha Jackson. Our executive producer is Jessica Buzzard. The show is produced by Goat Rodeo, and to find more of their work, go to GoatRodeoDC.com. Executive producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. Creative producers are Max Johnston, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Rebecca Seidel, and Jay Venables. Mixing and engineering by Rebecca Seidel. Intro music from Wayne Jones. Marketing and publicity by Stephen Raphael at Required Viewing. Graphics by Lee Fenvis. Special thanks to Trevor Groth, Kirsten Chalker, John Nine, and especially Christine Buzzard. Also to all our friends and family who put up with us and our crazy projects. Aww. If you like this episode, why don't you subscribe to stay up to date on new ones? And maybe leave us a rating and a review. Oh, and if you have any left, tell your friends. <laughs>